Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. This week marks our third week in James 4, verses 1 to 10. And let's go ahead and begin by reading uh, this passage together in its context. Uh, James, once again, is writing to a group of Christians who are enduring a series of trials, a series of conflicts are arising out of these trials. And James writes this letter in order to explain the relationship between these conflicts and their suffering. As he comes now to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, he hits the climax of this epistle where he pulls it all together and begins to finally articulate what God is doing through this suffering. The passage, once again, is James 4, 1 to 10, and we're going to begin by reading, starting in James 3, the second half of verse 10. Again, that's the second half of James 3, verse 10 through James 4, 10. James follows his warning about the dangers of the tongue by saying this, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously Over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do you ever find yourself maybe just a little bit envious of unbelievers? Are you ever just a little bit jealous of the way they get to live? After all, it's no small thing to follow Jesus. I know a lot of people think it's a small thing. They'll try to reduce Christianity to a kind of opinion about Jesus, an affirmation of what Jesus claimed about Himself and salvation and and heaven and hell, that all those things are true. A truth that may even need to be proclaimed and affirmed by others, but not something that really seriously transforms the life of the believer. That's not the type of belief that Jesus had in mind. 
when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him de- uh, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He wasn't envisioning a scenario where the disciple more or less stayed at the center of their own universe and simply added him to their orbit. No, he was envisioning a kind of Copernican revolution wherein the disciple realized that they were in his, they were in his orbit and conformed their lives to his desires. Jesus expects to have his disciples' complete attention. He demands full obedience. And make no mistake, while there are many benefits to one placing Christ at the center of their life, while there is most definitely great reward, at the same time there's a sense in which this new commitment actually makes life harder for the Christian. That's because while Jesus demands obedience and promises the Spirit who grants obedience, at the same time, the reality of indwelling sin means that there's a kind of battle taking place in the Christian that wasn't taking place before they decided to follow Christ. Back when they were an unbeliever, life was fairly simple. They only had to live for their own desires. But now that they follow Christ, the disciple must learn how to resist those desires and put them to death. That's why Jesus compared discipleship to carrying a cross. It's why he said that the disciple must deny themselves daily. It's not an easy life to live. It's actually a very, very hard life to live. In fact, that's why Jesus even encouraged his hearers to count the cost before they chose to follow him. Discipleship wouldn't be easy. And Jesus knew that many would fall out from exhaustion before they ever completed the task. You take this battle with sin that the Christian engages in daily... And then you add that to all the rejection and even persecution that Jesus promised for his followers. And it's enough to make the Christians start to mimic Israel in the wilderness and think to themselves, you know, it sure was nice back in Egypt. I wish I could go back. I I wish I could sit by the meat pots again and eat my fill of the cucumbers and the melons and the garlic. This thought is only magnified when you consider the degree to which it seems that the unbeliever prospers in their wickedness. The politician who's willing to sling mud at their opponent seems to win more often than the one who wants to stick to the facts. The ruthless businessman, the one who's willing to underpay and overwork his employees, the one who's willing to to fudge the facts in order to make a sale, he often seems to gain a bigger share of the market than the one who's honest in his dealings. Take crime, for instance. You know the old saying that crime doesn't pay? It's not really true. According to one study, uh, while around 500,000 burglaries occur each month, only 35,000 arrests are made. And only about 6,000 people are convicted, meaning just a little over 1% of all burglaries end in a prison sentence. Of those convictions, the average prison sentence is around 13 months. That means that if you do choose to commit a burglary, there's a pretty good chance you'll get away with it. And even if you don't, the cost isn't too high. It's a calculated risk. In fact, according to one author's estimates, quote, stealing is profitable so long as the object stolen is worth more than five days behind bars. (laughs) That's kind of frustrating, though, isn't it? I mean, you try to do the right thing. You try to work hard. You try to be honest. Do what God asks you to do. And then you look around, and what do you have to show for it? What have you gained with your righteousness that the wicked hasn't already gained, and then some? We find the answer in Psalm 73. Maybe go ahead and turn there for a moment. Psalm 73. 
is one of my favorite psalms because this is a question I find myself asking from time to time and it addresses the answer to that question so clearly. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is asking themselves this same kind of question. They're wondering, why do the wicked seem to prosper? They say, verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They go on to note that the wicked seem to be so free of the troubles that accompany the righteous. Their bodies are fat and sleek from all the fine food they eat. They seem to die in peace without any of the suffering that the righteous experience in their poverty. All this in spite of the fact that, verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. There doesn't seem to be any fear of God before their eyes. Instead, the psalmist says that they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? In other words, they even taunt God with their wickedness. They say, come now, you really think that God is going to punish the wicked? What a joke. Just look at me. God hasn't punished me. I've done all this stuff and I've gotten away with it. So let's get real. There's no God. Might as well just grab what you can and live it up while the getting's good. And as he considers all this, the psalmist starts to despair. He starts to believe the wicked's taunts, and he's even about to say it himself, verses 13 to 14. He says, All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like all you've ever gotten for your obedience is more pain? More suffering? Well, that's how he feels too. So what's the deal here? What do the righteous righteous have to gain with their righteousness? The answer comes in verses 17 to 20. The psalmist goes into God's sanctuary meditating on these truths, and he says, Then I discerned their end. Everything changes. Suddenly he gets it. He understands. He says, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Essentially, the psalmist says, you let them prosper because you want them to be destroyed. You let the wicked thrive so that they will not repent. That's what he means by you set them in slippery places. He's saying God responds to their wickedness by allowing them to prosper so that they'll feel no need to repent, so that they'll say, where is God? That way they'll die in their unbelief and face the wrath of God. Do you understand their prosperity isn't a sign of God's love for the wicked? It's a sign of His judgment. It's punishment for their sin. It's a sign of the fact that He's let them go. He's not going to correct them anymore. He's going to allow them to go their own way without doing anything more to let them know that they're in danger and then deal with them on Judgment Day. That's not how God treats His children. That's not how He treats the believer. No, it's because He loves the righteous that He corrects them when they go astray. And He'll often do this by making their life difficult when they're sinned so that they'll repent. That might not feel very good at the moment. It might even seem like the wicked get to have all the fun. But he does it so that he might save their soul on the day of judgment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you get for all your troubles. Jesus never promised an easy life here on this side of death. No, he promised a cross. He promised hardship and sacrifice and pain. But on the other side of death, he promises eternal life and blessing and joy. 
And if he loves you, he'll even discipline you to ensure that you receive your reward. The fact of the matter is that there are tremendous privileges that come with the gospel, but also great responsibility. We saw this last week as we studied James 4, 2-6. James readers are struggling with this question about the relationship between these trials that they're experiencing and the conflicts that are occurring in the church. They understand that the conflicts are arising from the trials. In this case in particular, they're having disputes over money. Poor brothers are apparently taking richer brothers to court. One party is apparently attempting to defraud the other. Church leaders are being tempted to defer to the richer brother in these cases for the sake of their own personal prosperity and social status. And that's all happening because of the the financial hardship that's seemingly arising out of these trials. And the question that these readers are trying to understand is, why is God sending these trials? And and what are we to do about it? Some, it would seem, are, are positing that God is bringing these trials in order to force these conflicts because He wants them to sin. James says that can't be the case since God cannot be tempted by evil and He Himself tempts no one. And then this raises the question, though, if, if God isn't forcing the Christian to sin, then why is He sending these trials? James has been building to the the answer to that question for several chapters. He starts in chapter 1 by pointing out that sin comes from inside the Christian. So if these Christians are in conflict with one another, it isn't because God is forcing them to sin. It's because they want to sin. It's 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 an expression of who they are. And then over and over again, James demonstrates how these Christians' conflicts demonstrate an inconsistent application of the gospel. Point being, it isn't God that's causing their conflicts. It's their idolatrous faith. James makes the point explicit when he says, verse 1 of our chapter, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So that's why these conflicts are occurring. It's because these believers are trusting in something other than God for their deliverance. And in this case, it's money. That's why they're sinning against one another. It's because they're, willing, they're unwilling to wait uh, for God to deliver them. Even more than this, it's because they've fallen under the idolatrous thinking of the world that tells them that mammon is a better master to serve than Yahweh. And that's a problem. Because as James points out back in chapter 1, these believers are the first fruits of God's creation. God brought them forth by the word of truth specifically so that they might be dedicated to Him in holiness. And so now that James has established that the the, uh, idolatrous faith of these Christians, he unleashes the real reason for their problems, and that's the fact that God hates spiritual adultery. These Christians are spiritual adulterers, and God hates spiritual adultery. Verses 2 to 6. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. 
What James uh, says here is something that we need to consider more often as Christians. Uh, We know that God establishes His covenant with us by grace. We don't have to do anything to earn God's love or favor. In fact, He even sets His love upon us before we've done anything, either good or bad, according to Romans 9. So salvation is entirely of grace. We don't do anything to deserve our covenant relationship with God. And yet, once this covenant has been established, the Scripture tells us that God does expect us to return His affection. Make no mistake, He doesn't expect it under penalty of death or anything like that. As we see throughout the Old Testament, God does not ultimately reject His beloved even when she is unfaithful. But at the same time, if she does not return His affection, He will pursue her. And not only with professions of His love, but even with discipline if necessary. Again, He'll correct, He'll even inflict pain if necessary. And that's not because He doesn't love us. Far from it, quite the opposite, actually. He'll do it, rather, because of how intense His love is for us. He says, James says here in verse 5, He's jealous for us. He yearns for us with a great passion. It's because He wants to be in fellowship with us so badly that He will not tolerate us to run into the arms of another lover. So He calls us back. And even corrects us if necessary so that we can be in fellowship with one another. That's how great His zeal is for us, to be with us. It says the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, he says it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are, without, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's the same thing that the psalmist saw in Psalm 73. Love isn't expressed in permissiveness, but in guidance and correction. And that's the kind of love that God expresses towards His children when they sin. And this means that some suffering is a result of divine discipline. Of course, it's not the same as saying that all suffering is a result of sin. There are plenty of examples in the Scriptures that show us that sometimes God sends suffering for no other reason than that His children might glorify Him through their faithfulness in the midst of pain. The story of Job, for instance, is a great example of that kind of suffering. But all the same, some suffering is a result of divine discipline. And what James is saying here in this epistle is that these conflicts in the church clearly demonstrate that it's not Job that we're dealing with here. Yeah, maybe it's wrong to say that sin is the cause of suffering when you're dealing with a man like Job, who the Scriptures say was blameless and upright in his conduct. But when sin is clearly present, as it is here with James readers, then it can't be immediately discounted as the cause of the suffering. And this is most especially the case when the trial is putting pressure on the specific idol that the sinner refuses to let go. In that case, it's worth asking the question, is God sending this pain into your life in order to rebuke you for your idolatry and call you to repentance? That's what James seems to be implying here when he says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He seems to be telling these Christians, your sin is the reason for your suffering. God means to sanctify you. He wants to cleanse you from your sin. So if you only repented of your love for money, God would have no reason to further punish you. Well, if that's the case, then what do we do once we realize that we're under the discipline of God? If you recall a couple of weeks ago, I... I, Uh, gave you all a homework assignment where I asked you to evaluate your conflicts by asking 
these three questions. I ask you to, to say, ask yourself, what do I want right now? Is it good or bad according to the Scriptures? And what am I doing to get it? Uh, perhaps in the course of answering these questions, you came to realize that you are a spiritual adulterer, and perhaps God is even disciplining you for your idolatrous desires. If so, then what's next? What should you do now that you've seen your sin? That's what James explains in this morning's passage. In previous weeks, he's explained the source and the reason for these readers' troubles. Now, today, he gets to the solution. So how are they going to solve these problems, given all that he's shared with them so far? A big picture, we see the answer at the beginning of verse 7. James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The therefore in that statement is significant, of course. It means that James is coming to a conclusion. He's already established the reason for these readers' troubles is their spiritual adultery. Therefore, James says, submit yourselves to God. Now, that's common sense, right? If the the problem is spiritual adultery, and if God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble, meaning that His wrath will depart once His bride returns to Him, then the solution is rather simple. Stop being adulterous. Return again to God. Return again to your husband, and His discipline will subside. That's a rather common sense solution to this problem, and that's the counsel that James provides here. But the question we have to ask ourselves now is, what does that look like? What does it mean to submit oneself to God? And that's what James explains in the rest of this passage. If you want to think of it uh, as a a wayward bride returning to her husband, then you can describe the rest of this passage as three steps that she needs to take in order to return. That's not necessarily steps in terms of sequence, as in first do this and then second do this, but three steps in the sense of three actions that she needs to take. You can identify each of these steps by noting the parallels or even the contrast that James makes in the following series of commands. He groups these ideas thematically. And then at the end, James describes the result or outcome of these steps. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the first of these steps. And the first step in returning and submitting is this. Number one, resist. Resist. James says, submit yourselves by resisting the devil. We see this in the second half of verse 7 and the first half of verse 8. He says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, if you note here, this actually incorporates more than just resisting the devil. It also includes drawing near to God. That's the contrast that binds this step together. On the one hand, turning away from the devil, while at the same time turning to God. And that's because this, this, these two commands are two sides of the same coin. The ultimate problem for James' readers is that they've fallen sway under a demonic kind of thinking. I discussed this briefly last week. The demonic realm responds to the unity of God by attempting to sow division in His order. That's how demons attack God, by fostering rebellion against His divine authority. And the way that they they do this is through the use of doubt. They get people to doubt either the goodness or the wisdom or the power of God, and this in turn leads people to place their trust in idols rather than in God. And as people strive to gain the favor of or even possess these finite temporal idols, they end up fighting and quarreling with one another. 
Multiple idols, of course, means multiple value systems, which will inevitably bring people into contention with one another. Uh, Finite idols, like money, means that there are limited resources for the worshippers to draw upon, and the result is inevitably contention. This is how the demons operate, by sowing division through deception and doubt. And again, this is what's happened in James readers. as evidenced by the, their conflicts with one another. That all points back to the fact that they've fallen sway to a thinking that is in the words of chapter 3, verse 15, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And of course, this culminated in James' rebuke in verse 4 when he tells them, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So again, this is where their trials are coming from. They've, they've been caused by the spiritual adultery that's been stirred up by this demonic influence. And this means that the first step in submitting to God and solving their problems is to turn away from these demonic influences and to turn to God. The cause of their problems is their spiritual adultery, and so the solution entails removing themselves from the influences that are promoting that idolatrous faith and intentionally pursuing a relationship with God instead. But what does that look like to do this? What, is, what does this mean to draw near to God? And for that matter, what does it mean to resist the devil? When do you even know, for instance that Satan is present and active in your troubles? In what way does he disturb us? Right? James doesn't explain all of that, does he? I mean, isn't, isn't Satan a, a spatial creature like the rest of us? I mean, he's not omnipresent like God is, right? So is he bothering each of us personally? Is he even capable of doing that? In short, in what way does Satan attack us? And what does it mean, therefore, to resist him? You know, you see these things on, on TV and, and in certain types of churches where people will go through these sort of rituals and, and utter incantations and maybe shout things like, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is that what it means to resist the devil? Is it as simple as shouting into the air, Be gone, Satan. Well, I think in order to answer that question, you have to remember the context here, and that's trials. And the reason for these trials which James has already explained, is due to an idolatrous faith. You see, the Scripture shows us that Satan does play a role in trials. Probably the clearest example of this occurs in the book of Job, where Satan presents himself before God and begins accusing Job, saying to God, He only praises you because you bless Him. His worship isn't real. It's fake. Take away the blessing and watch how his faith crumbles. You know, Sproul mentioned this during our Sunday school last week. The chief work that Satan does is that of accusation. In fact, the word that we translate as devil, diablos, means simply accuser or slanderer in the Greek. Likewise, the word Satan means accuser or adversary in Hebrew. The idea is that Satan stands before the throne of God pointing the finger and declaring, guilty, guilty, guilty. And we've seen that this is even why Satan deceives. The fact is, Satan doesn't make anyone sin. Like, he doesn't trick anyone into doing something that they wouldn't otherwise do if they had known better. You know how people will do that, kind of, well, the devil made me do it, they'll blame it on Satan. That's not how that works, because that actually doesn't serve his purposes. 
He doesn't trick people into doing something they wouldn't otherwise do. And he's after condemnation. And the Bible indicates that we're held accountable for the things that we know are wrong. Believe it or not, there's a sense in which Satan is after the truth. He wants to reveal who we really are on the inside because he knows that that's what will condemn us. And so when he deceives, he deceives in order to trick us to reveal the truth about who we really are. We're great hypocrites, folks. We're very good at acting righteous on the outside while having all kinds of wickedness on the inside. Satan wants to bring that sin to the surface so he can say, Aha! You see that? That's a sinner. Condemn him, God. You say you're just. Well, if you're just, then you have to condemn him. How that relates to trials is that Satan will sometimes orchestrate these trials in order to make these kinds of accusations. That's what you see in the book of Job, for instance. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, I, I thought we've said here, right, throughout, as we've studied James, that I thought we've said that God orchestrates our trials. Right? So how are we going to say that Satan orchestrates our trials? Doesn't God orchestrate our trials? And He does. But if you remember from back in chapter 1, and I doubt you probably do, it's been a long time at this point, but back in chapter 1 I pointed out that God will sometimes work through evil in order to accomplish good purposes. There's a great example of this in 2 Samuel 24 where it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so He incited David to go and number them, to go and number the people of Israel. Tells him to take a census, the census, or not tells him, but but incites him to take a census. The census is wrong. It's an expression of David's idolatrous faith, as he sought confidence confidence in the size of his armies rather than in the power of God. And so God incited him to take this census so that he could punish Israel, according to Second Samuel twenty four. But then you go over to 1 Chronicles 21 and it says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number the people. In other words, it would seem that although 2 Samuel 24 indicates that God wanted to punish Israel and so directed David to take the census, all that was actually occurring through the work of Satan. Like Satan was going and tempting David so that David would sin and he could say guilty to God and God in turn would then discipline the nation on account of David's sin. Now, how all that works without God being responsible for David's sin or even Satan's temptation for that matter, it's not entirely clear according to the Scripture. But what is clear is that Satan was the means of bringing David's sin to the surface so that the jealousy of God could be aroused and he could discipline Israel. Are you following me here? When his people are in sin, God will orchestrate the trial in order to correct them for their sin, and he'll do this by... I don't know if you want to call it permitting or directing or guiding. However it works, he'll do this through the means of Satan's accusations. And so while trials are sent by God, Satan still has a role to play in this whole spiritual ecosystem. And in this case, it's to incite doubt and accuse. Again, why? Well, so that God's jealousy might be aroused to the point of disciplining his people. Now again, Satan means all that for evil. He does it in order to hurt God's people, but God directs it for good to bring His people to repentance. So then, how does Satan do this? How does he manage to tempt God's people? 
Well, it isn't by possessing them or overpowering their will, since again, that wouldn't really make them culpable for the things they do. His intent, once again, is to draw what's already inside of them to the surface. And the way that he seems to do this, according to the New Testament, is by ordering and directing the very systems and structures of this world so as to deceive people from the truth. This certainly seems to be apparent in James' thought. Once again, you see James equate friendship with the world. The world as enmity with God in verse 4. He doesn't set God and Satan in opposition to one another in verse 4, but God and the world. Then as he begins to say what one must do to assuage God's jealousy down in verse 7, he starts by saying, draw near to God but flee from Satan. That seems to equate friendship with the world as friendship with Satan. And by this point in the letter, that really shouldn't surprise us, since back at the end of chapter 3, James described, again, two different kinds of wisdom, two different kinds of understanding. There's that which is from above, referring to the wisdom that comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, this consistent and perfect wisdom that comes from God. And there's then that which is, quote, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. The idea is that there's very clearly two different kingdoms at work in the creation. And they're in opposition to one another. There's the kingdom of God, which is up in the heavens, and then there's the realm of the demons, which is here below. God sends His wisdom from above while they proliferate their wisdom, or rather their deception, down here below. This is the testimony of the rest of the New Testament as well. Jesus calls Satan, quote, the ruler of this world in John 12, 31, and then again in John 14, 30, and then again in John 16, 11. John says that, quote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one in 1 John 5, 19. So Satan is very clearly running things in the present structure of the world. This would seem to be why John even echoes James in saying in 1 John 2, 15-17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This would also seem to be why Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that when we believe, God, quote, transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, we learn what Satan is trying to accomplish with this power. Paul tells us that, quote, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world... Note that, by the way, again, Paul calls him the God of this world, and he says, quote, He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we can see what Satan's goals are. He wants to see mankind condemned. That should be evident from Genesis 3, right? Again, he's the accuser. He can't destroy God himself, so he's going to move on to the next best thing he can, and that's attack the image of God and try to see that destroyed. And so he attempts, and then he accuses. And when there's an opportunity for grace to be received, he works so that men do not receive it. That's because in his hatred for God, he wants men to suffer. So then, how does he do that? How does he manage to blind mankind to the truth? 
Well, there seems to be at least two main answers to that question, and we'll tie this all back to James here in just a minute. I know we're kind of wandering, but hold on just a minute. There's two main answers to that question. First, he works through the world system in order to pump deception into the world. Ephesians 2.2, Paul says that, quote, uh, the prince of the power of the air is, quote, now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he accomplishes his purpose through man. He's presently at work in the sons of disobedience, meaning he's at work in mankind to make them stumble, and then as men adopt his lies, they proliferate his lies for him. In fact, it's interesting, flip over to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Follow along with me here. There in Ephesians 2, it's interesting, Paul switches from talking about you, that's the Ephesians, to talking about we or us. He says, verses 1 and 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Then in verse 3, he switches and he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the, uh, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Paul seems to be making some kind of distinction between uh, a body that he belongs to versus some body that the Ephesians belong to. Now, what's the deal here? Is he speaking about the Ephesians before their belief and he as a Christian after his conversion? Like, is he comparing the converted to the unconverted? No, look at verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time. At what time? Well, at the time when they were dead in their trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. Paul says, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then he says, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then, of course, he proceeds to talk about how both Jew and Gentile are now being built together in one body. He explains in chapter 3 how on the basis of this plan he has been sent to proclaim the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. In other words, who is it? Who is that you back at the beginning of chapter 2? It's the Gentiles. They were following the prince of the power of the air. Paul can't entirely say the same thing of the Jews because although they were also by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, at the same time they were still ruled by Yahweh, right? They had God's law. God disciplined them as His children. Israel was the one holdout on the earth, or you might even say the beachhead, where God established His presence and began retaking this rebellious earth from the clutches of Satan. And in case you think I'm reading too much into this, if you were to flip over to Acts 26, you don't need to, but you can if you'd like. If you were to flip over to Acts 26, you would find in verse 18 that Paul describes his commission uh, from Christ to the Gentiles as being sent to, quote, open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The idea is that the very nations of the earth are guided and directed by demonic deception. This probably would have been most evident in ancient times when nations served specific physical idols. Paul tells us, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, that when pagans sacrificed to idols, they sacrificed to demons and not to God. 
So there goes the whole idea that all religions are basically saying the same thing and worshiping the same God, right? Again, God is one, not many. And so Yahweh doesn't manifest Himself in multiple expressions. We talked about this at the end of chapter 3. This means that all false religions are demonically influenced. They, they, that would be why, right after John says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, he exhorts his readers, 1 John 5, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's because false religion is demonically influenced. And so when guys like Pharaoh or Sennacherib or Nebuchadnezzar serve idols, they're actually falling sway to demonic influence, meaning that the values and the laws that they espouse, right, likewise end up being demonically influenced. And that's obviously going to have a huge impact on a people when their rulers and their cultural leaders are under demonic influence. Satan operates in that way in mankind. By influencing cultural leaders with deception and then allowing the institutions that arise out of their influence to spread his lies for him. Now how all that works today in the age of secularism when men are no longer bowing down to anything, let alone an idol carved from stone, that may be harder to see. But at the same time, once you consider that Satan works through false religion religion, and that even so-called secularists attempt to provide answers to religious questions with their philosophies, then it isn't too hard to figure out. Satan's methods are still the same. Corrupt the society's thinkers and rulers and cultural leaders and watch the rest of the world follow suit. It's the same thing we saw back in chapter 3. If people's teachers exercise a disproportionate influence on the body, so stain the tongue and the whole body is defiled. And this is why you should be praying for your rulers and cultural leaders, by the way, instead of simply bad-mouthing them, because it's because their spiritual health is critical to the spiritual health of the whole. So this is the one way that Satan manages to blind mankind by creating false religious systems that then corrupt a society's institutions with false religion. And then the second way he does it is by silencing the church. According to Paul, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. Meaning it's the setting, right, that holds the crown jewel of the gospel and presents it to the world. Again, this is why God has called us out of the world. It is in the words of Peter, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're all ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven left here on this planet to warn the world. The King is victorious, and He's coming back to submit all things to God once again. But He offers pardon for your sins. So repent and believe in the gospel. This means that all, uh, of all people that Satan is concerned with, it's the church. Because we're the one people who have the message that is able to pluck men out of hell. So he tries to silence the church. He tries to distract them from their mission. Again, how? I think you see two methods. First, he tries to get the church to imbibe false teachings through the influence of the world. You see him do the same thing with Israel in the Old Testament, right? Again, Israel was the original institution that God intended to advance his kingdom of salvation. They were the original kingdom of priests. And so Satan takes a guy like Balaam, for instance, and he uses him to introduce Baal worship in Israel. And if the tongue is the key to the defilement of the body, and if Israel first and now the church is the tongue, then corrupt the tongue and the whole body is defiled. 
So this is one method that Satan uses. He encourages idolatry in the church so that their message is corrupted. And there are so many different ways he does this. So many that I think we could spend an entire other message on that. But then second, and this is kind of related to the first, but second, he will attempt to bully or intimidate the church. In other words, he'll take these same world institutions that he controls and he'll influence these institutions to persecute the church, to either intimidate the church into silence or to corrupt their message by pushing them to trust in idols. Again, you saw this happen in Israel, even when they did obey God, right? Then nations like the Assyrians came in and they threatened them. And in their faithlessness, they turned to other nations for deliverance rather than to God. So Satan used these Gentile nations to foster idolatry and silence Israel in their mission. Peter warns about this very thing in relation to the church. When in 1 Peter 5.8, speaking in the context of persecution, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then he says, and pay close attention here, listen to the language here, verse 9, he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So now, take all that for a moment. And can you start to see what's happening here in James and what James means when he says, resist the devil and draw near to God. God has a plan for His people. He wants His people to serve as a kingdom of priests. And the, and the Scripture even warns that if His people do not live up to that calling, then He will discipline them, and severely. Now, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, He says, you know, you're familiar with the passage, He says, you're the light of the world. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. So let your light shine before men so that they may see the glory of your Father, right, and, and glorify Him in heaven. Uh, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And He says, and if the salt has lost its saltiness, then it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown under feet and trampled underfoot by men. That happened to Israel. They failed to live up to their calling. They did not function as a kingdom of priests. And the result is that God has raised up His church to fulfill their mission to the world in its place. That the world might have a witness of the truth until the time of their repentance. The same can happen to the church as well. When we fail to live up to our calling, God will discipline us. And so that's what's happened here in James. What's going on here is that Satan is working through these trials to attack the church... And it's working. They're turning to idols rather than to God. They're living in a way that's inconsistent with the gospel, that is is distorting their testimony to the world. And this is arousing the jealousy of God who brought His people forth by the word of truth to be His first fruits. Now again, God means all of that for good in order to discipline and purify His people for their purpose. But Satan means it for evil in order to blind the minds of the unbelieving. What does it mean then to resist Satan and to draw near to God? It means enduring in faithfulness. Even in spite of the pressure that comes from trials. It means staying focused on your mission. It means living entirely for Christ, even despite the cost that comes with that faithfulness. 
Listen, guys, history tells us that the church's voice is loudest when the trials are most intense and the church still perseveres in love. Right? That's what you see early on in Acts, right? It says, Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Listen, Satan has no interest in that. There's probably nothing that he fears more than a church that bears up in faithfulness and love under suffering. And so, yes, when the church resists Satan in this way, when it remains faithful, he will indeed flee from them. So again, here's the solution to their problems. How will these readers escape from the trials they're experiencing? It isn't by running from them, like what these readers are doing here in their selfishness. It's by enduring them with Christ-like love. And how is the church going to manage to do that? Paul, uh, Peter's already given us the answer. That passage we, re- we read just a moment ago, he says once again, resist him, Okay, referring to Satan, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's by faith that we resist Satan's lies. It's by faith that we persevere in spite of our circumstances. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you understand, guys? There is, a, there is an unseen realm that we are all fighting against daily. You don't see it, but it's there, and it's trying to silence you, Christian. And how do we contend against these forces? Paul says, you fasten the belt of truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. You shod your feet with the gospel of peace. You take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see all that? It all has to do with our faith. We equip ourselves against these spiritual forces with the things that we believe. It's when we believe, for instance, that God will provide for us, that Christians such as these readers in James will be bold in their love for one another. Endurance, perseverance, comes through faith. Now, why am I taking the time to say all this? Why, why would I spend an entire morning, right, on essentially just one verse, not even one verse, a half of two verses? Just one of James' instruction on the solution to these readers' problems. The readers, ladies and gentlemen, is because I think you need to realize that Satan truly is at work in this world. And you need to know how to resist him. It's been said at various times and in various ways that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making people believe he doesn't exist. And I think that's probably very true for the church today. There are very real forces at work in this world, brothers and sisters, that are actively trying to get you, Christian, to stumble. Because they want to blind the minds of the unbelieving from the gospel. But our problem, unfortunately, is that so many of us have bought into a secular understanding of the world, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, that we pretend as if those forces aren't even there. And that's utter foolishness, friends. Satan is real. Demons are real. And they exercise a very real influence in this world, and they mean to keep you silent. You can't go around pretending these forces exist, because if you don't, then you won't contend against them, and you won't resist the devil. And if you don't resist these forces, then they win without a fight. 
They'll take the field without any resistance, and the eyes of the unbelieving will remain blind. So you need to understand that these forces are real. And not only that, but you also need to know how to resist them if you're going to contend with them. And the way that you do that isn't with anything extraordinary, at least not by human estimation. It isn't with incantations or spells or little signs across the chest, right? No, it's by persevering in your proclamation of the gospel. And persevering specifically by faith. I hate to say this, but I I, I would fear that for some of you, Satan may have already succeeded. And a very long time ago. Or he is presently succeeding. Either he's distracted you by the cares for this world, gotten you to think that what really matters in life is money or approval or recreation or comfort, and gotten you to run after those things rather than live in the light of the realities of heaven. Or he's intimidated you into silence. Either way, he's gotten you to close your mouth. He's gotten you off topic, and in so doing, He's made you unfruitful for the sake of the gospel. And no, that may not mean that you'll lose your salvation or something like that. It just means that no one's coming with you. And what you need to understand, Christian, is that as long as you're in that state, you're inviting the discipline of God. For these Christians, it was their conflicts that pointed to their idolatry. For you, it may be your silence, your apathy. And what you must know this morning is that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And God yearns jealously over the spirit that He's made to dwell in you. And He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If this describes you, brother or sister, you need to repent, therefore, and submit yourself to God. You need to draw near to Him once more by living out the obligations that flow out of the Gospel, by placing Christ once again at the center of your universe and shaping the whole of your life according to His Word and His commands, knowing that as you draw near to Him, He will draw near to you. And if you're going to do that, it's going to occur by faith. It's going to happen as you put off doubt and put on belief. So how do we end up doing that then? How do we resist the devil as we grow in our faith. I think James will show us in the next couple of steps that we encounter here in verses 7 to 10, which we'll get into in part 4 of our message next week. Let's pray.